Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he said, here I am. Eli said, What is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. This is the word of the Lord. As we deal with the first testament, the Hebrew scriptures... Uh, you need a little help, I think, with the chronology. There is a rather easy little pattern here that will help you remember the main changes that occurred in the history of Israel. Remember with me that the Israelites count their history from Abraham and Sarah. Everything before Abraham and Sarah in the Bible is a prehistory. It is a Jewish attempt to describe how all things came into being and how an old man and an old woman ended up living in what is modern-day Iraq between the Tigris-Euphrates rivers at a little community called Ur and were visited one day by God Almighty who asked them if they would like to be parents for the first time. That occurred roughly 1800 before the Common Era, right? The next 200 years are called the time of the patriarchs. Abraham and Sarah, who did have a son named Isaac, who married Rebekah. They had twins, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob, with two wives and two handmaids, fathered 12 sons, the one whom we know best of all, Joseph. Those four, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the first 200 years. Then follows a 400-year period, enslavement in Egypt. A Pharaoh came to power who knoweth not Joseph, the old King James Bible said, and they endured 400 miserable years. So roughly 1,200, <coughs> Moses came. God sent him back to Egypt to rescue his people and from Moses and Aaron and their sister Miriam to Joshua, who would finally lead them across the river and help parcel out the land, the 12 tribes lived in what political scientists call an amphictyony, a loose confederation of tribal groups that would come together occasionally against a common enemy. And the person they believed God had lifted up to lead them against that common enemy they called a judge. You remember some of them. Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, uh, Deborah. Uh, these judges would finally culminate 
in a wonderful old priest named Eli, but a priest whose sons were rascals, dishonest, blasphemous. So God is about to relieve Eli of his responsibilities and pass them on to Samuel. Samuel will be the last of the great judges. When we get to next Sunday's text, we will find the people so sick of 200 years of mismanagement that they're demanding a king so they can be like everybody else, forgetting that God called them to be different from everybody else. You have it? 200 years of patriarchs, 400 years of slavery, 200 years of judges, 400 years of kings. And the last of the Davidic kings was marched away in manacles to ancient Babylon, died there, and never since has a descendant of David sat on the throne in Jerusalem. 200, 400, 200, 400. It takes you all the way from 1800 before the Common Era to 600, just a few years after 600 before the Common Era. All right, today we're dealing with another portion of the story of the last of the great judges, Samuel. We don't know just how old he was. His mother, Hannah, had promised God that if she could bear a son, she would dedicate him to the Lord. And when this little boy was weaned, in fact, she brought him and said to Eli, here is the child that God has given me. I entrust him to your care. And he's taught little Samuel how to be about the Lord's business in the Lord's house. And then one night, Samuel is asleep, hears a voice. He runs in the next room where Eli is sleeping and says, You called, sir? No, I didn't call. Go back to bed. He went back to his bed, went to sleep. A voice again, Samuel, Samuel, you called, sir? No, I didn't call you. And then old Samuel says, uh, I mean, Eli says to him, uh, Now listen carefully. If you hear this voice again, simply answer, Here I am, Lord. And listen carefully to see what follows. And so, in fact, he went back to bed, and he did heard the, hear the voice the third time. And what the voice said to him is today's text. I've underlined four things. Number one, Samuel, I'm about to do something that will make the ears tingle of everyone who hears it. You have to remember that just a few chapters before, this author has said to us, the voice of the Lord was rarely heard in those days. And here the voice of the Lord has just been heard, so pay close attention. Some weeks ago, in one of my sermons, I told you about an Irish playwright named Connor McPherson. Uh, if you recall that sermon, uh, then you will have a little leg up here on what I'm about to tell you today. Connor McPherson is one of the finest playwrights uh, working today, and his plays are finally making their way across the Atlantic to the United States. Connor McPherson seems really caught up in raising the question, why do so many Irish fathers and grandfathers drink themselves into oblivion every night at the pub? Why? What's troubling our Irish men? And so he writes plays that go in different directions, but they all seem to be struggling with that question. What's wrong with our daddies and our granddaddies in Ireland? The most recent one to open in New York is called Port Authority. Port Authority is, takes place in a bus station, almost deserted. There are only three men sitting in the bus station. One is young, described by the playwright as a punk, a rascal, a young man. 
The second is a middle-aged man, angry, who spends most of his time drinking as much as he can. The third is a much older man, a widower, who now lives in a home for the aged. But all three men have ended up in the same bus station on the same night. And finally, one stands and tells you a little bit of his story, the other two still sitting. A second stands and tells you a little bit of his story, the other two sitting. And the third man stands and tells you a little bit of his story. This goes uninterrupted for 90 minutes. There is no intermission. 90 consecutive minutes. You hear more and more about all three of these men and finally discover right near the end of the play that the young man is the oldest man's grandson. The middle one is not son of the older, oldest nor father of the youngest, but he did have a fling at one time with the oldest man's daughter. So he's interwoven here as well. The reviewer in the Wall Street Journal and a very different reviewer in the New Yorker magazine came to the same conclusion about what Connor McPherson is trying to say in this play. That all three men, one very young, one middle-aged, one along in years, all have deep regret. Everyone realizes there came a moment in his life when had he made a different decision, everything would have been different and better. But that time came and went and is not coming again. Samuel, I'm about to do a new thing. And when that voice speaks to your innermost heart, listen very carefully at that point. This might be the moment that would change the rest of your life for the good. Number two. <coughs> Second thing here. Samuel is now told, uh, before we can get this new thing going, Samuel, I've got to deal with some old, unfinished business. And that involves Eli and his sons. Now, every indication is that Eli was a good man who loved the Lord and tried faithfully to dispense God's justice and mercy and righteousness. But his sons are rascals. And though Eli speaks to them <coughs> about their behavior, it doesn't change. So God is not happy about that. And though one time he had promised Eli that he and his sons and grandsons would be the men who stood for righteousness and justice within Israel forever, he now says, no, you will not be my judges ever again. Not you, not your sons, not your grandsons. I'm relieving you. Have you watched The Simpsons all these years? The Simpsons are a pretty irreverent bunch. There were many who thought they wouldn't last a season on television, but in fact they have. They've lasted years because it is so well written, because each character is true to himself, herself, you get to know them. You get to care about them. You can anticipate what they will do next. Irreverent, except for one. There's one named Ned Flanders, and Ned Flanders is a born-again evangelical Christian whose faith never flags, except for once, when his wife was killed suddenly, unexpectedly, in an accident. 
But he came back again, came back strongly after that. And so now, two books that I'm aware of have been written about the faith of Ned Flanders. Now, you may find this strange unless you remember 40 years ago a book being written called The Gospel According to Peanuts. Um, a young theologian, recent graduate of Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University, decided that Charles Schultz was saying more than some people were hearing in his cartoon strip about Charlie Brown. That Schultz was very consistent in the way he was developing his characters, that you knew what Lucy was going to do in a given situation. You knew how Schroeder was going to react. You knew what Charlie Brown was going to do next. But he believed Charles Schultz, who once studied to be a Presbyterian minister, was also conveying the good news. And so he wrote the gospel according to Peanuts. Well, there are two new books about the faith of Ned Flanders. And those books point out that Ned Flanders really does believe in God and that he says a lot of good things about God. God is Alpha and Omega, Ned says. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is love. He is grace. He is unmerited favor. And then Ned says, but be careful when God loses his temper. This writer says sometimes God has had enough and God finally acts against those who are evil. I don't know if you stay up on Sunday night and watch the British comedies on OETA. <clears throat> I get up early on Sunday morning and I usually have a long and pretty active day, but I'm still having trouble winding down Sunday night and I often stay up and watch those British comedies. And if you've watched them over the years, you know that the Brits have an expression, that really gets up my nose. Have you heard one of them say that? That really gets up my nose. Well, strangely enough, that's an expression from Hebrew as well. That when someone gets angry, it's because something got up his or her nose. Now, since God's nose is bigger than anybody else's, it takes longer for God's nose to get full, if you would, of fire. But when God finally has fire in the nose, you better stand back. As Ned says, you better be careful when God loses his temper. Because there finally come those times when God has had enough. And he deals with the pharaohs of the world and seeks new beginnings. Number three, God speaks to Samuel. Samuel, pondering all these words, cannot sleep. He just lies there till morning. And the next morning, Eli says, Did that voice speak to you again? Yes, sir. What did he say to you? Tell me everything now, boy. You tell me everything. And when Samuel tells him, God said, he's ready to deal with your family. And that family is going to pass from leadership of the Israelites. And I and my family are going to ascend to leadership. 
And Eli said, here in our translation, he says, It is the I am who I am. Let him do what seems good to him. The rabbis translate it differently. They say, and Eli said, It is the I am who I am. He will do what is right. So even though it involves a judgment on the family of Eli, he still believes that God is the one who does what's right. If this is the right way for us, then this is the right way. If God has said to you, this is the way we're going, it'll be the right way. Years ago, I was preaching in another state, and after my first sermon, a fellow came up to me and said, you sound like a fellow who must read uh, Oswald Chamber every day, do you? I must admit, I'd never heard of Oswald Chambers. <clears throat> and so I said to the man, I, I, I'm sorry, no, I, I, I don't read Oswald Chambers. I, I don't really know who he is. Well, he said he lived 100 years ago. He was head of a Bible college in London. But he also wrote wonderful devotions. And these devotionals, one for every day, will change your life. I said, well, that sounds interesting. Well, the next night after I'd preached, this fellow came up to me at the punch and cookie time and had brought me Oswald Chambers' book of devotionals. And I took it home with me when I went and I started reading it at nighttime. It is a powerful book. And if you read Oswald Chambers' writings from the turn of the last century into the London Society of his time, he, you find that he loved Robert Browning. And he loved Browning's part about grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. As a man of faith, Oswald Chambers saw that as a promise of God. The best is yet to be. He was the head of that Bible college until 1915, World War I. And many of his former students were drafted into that war. He heard of all the carnage and the death and destruction that World War I was bringing, and he did the best he could to get the address of every former student of his and to write regularly. And he always ended his letters by saying, no matter how difficult this day must be for you, the best is yet to be. The best is yet to be. That's what Eli says. If God's going to deal with my family, okay. If God is going to lift your family, Samuel, okay. Because God is the one who does what's right. God is the one who does what's good. Number four. So Samuel lay there the rest of the night and when the morning came, he got up and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. I love that verse. Huh? He opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And what did Jesus say about that house of the Lord? The Lord's house shall be known as a house of prayer. Two weeks ago, I flew down to Houston to speak at the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Memorial Drive United Methodist Church. 
that church was only seven years old when I was appointed its only associate pastor. They had begun in a school and finally had the first unit of their master plan completed. And I was asked uh, by my bishop, told to go there and be the minister of evangelism. Now, all these years later, they were kind enough to invite me back to speak at this big dinner honoring their first 50 years. Um, the next morning, I'm in the Houston airport waiting for my plane, and I picked up USA Today. And there was an article on the religion page that I read as I flew to Tulsa. It's about a Shiite named Safa Alami. Safa Alami. Uh, if you haven't done much reading in comparative religions, you may not know the major reason there is so much bloodshed in Iraq today. It's about the Sunnis and the Shiites. These two factions have not gotten along well for more than 1,500 years, almost 1,500, because they had a disagreement about who should have succeeded the Prophet Muhammad. Who should have succeeded to lead Islam? And there were even a couple of murders and assassinations way back there, and they've not trusted each other all these centuries. More than 30 years ago, a fellow came to power in Iraq called Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni. So he set up his group to be in control of Iraq, and his Ba'ath Party was a part of the Sunni peoples. We went in and did away with Saddam Hussein. I suspect we had people who did not know that there are far more Shiites in Iraq than there are Sunnis. And if you set up a democracy and there's one vote for one person, the Shiites won. And so they'd been oppressed for 30 years by Saddam Hussein and his particular faction of Islam. So they've been making up for 30 years of being abused and mistreated, along with 13 or 1400 years that these two groups have not gotten along very well. Safa is a Shiite cleric who reads his Quran and who prays at all the appointed prayer times. And God started whispering to him that he needed to go to one of the largest Sunni mosques in Baghdad to pray with the Sunnis. So he got in a taxi and he went as far as that taxi driver dared go into Sunni part of the city he stopped the taxi, made him get out, and Safa put on his white headdress that immediately would identify him to everyone as a Shiite and started walking toward the mosque in the Sunni neighborhood. He said, I knew there were rifles trained on my head from windows all along the route. I kept praying to God, don't let me be afraid. Don't let me be afraid. Don't let me be afraid. The word spread down the street that he was coming. A man inside, an official of the Sunni mosque, who had lost a son and three brothers in this fighting, asked, what does he want? And the person who had told him that he was coming said, I don't know, sir. 
So he rushed outside to meet him, and Safa said to him, I just wanted to pray with you. May I pray with you? And the Sunni threw his arms around him and hugged him. He said, I had not spoken to a Shiite, nor had one speak to me in more than two years. Just outside the windows of this mosque, there are 5,000 new graves, and more than 2,800 of them are teenage Sunni boys who've been killed by the Shiites. They went in and knelt on the carpet side by side and prayed. When Safa left, he got in the first taxi he could find to take him back to his part of Baghdad, but the taxi had gone only a block or two when it was forced off the street by three larger SUV-type vehicles. Armed and masked men jerked him out of the taxi, threw him in the back of one of these vehicles, drove him, after putting a, a blindfold on him, to some neighborhood and threw him down into the basement of the building. For the next six days and nights, he was in total darkness. He said, I knew that at any moment they might kill me. But finally, pressures were brought to bear and he was released onto the street. Six days, and if the next day was the Sabbath, he walked through that Sunni neighborhood to the mosque and asked if he could pray with them. And the same man threw his arms around him and hugged him, and they went in shoulder to shoulder, knelt and prayed. Eighteen Sunni mosques have been reopened that had been virtually destroyed by the Shiites, and more and more, not nearly all, but more and more Shiites go every Sabbath with Safa to pray in the Sunni mosque. Remember the song? I gave you the words the Sunday of Pentecost that we had sung at our general conference in Fort Worth. If you believe, and I believe, and we together pray, the Holy Spirit will come down, and we too will be saved.